When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The border between Russia and China is one of the world's longest, spanning thousands of miles. It's one of the few extended land borders between two great powers, subject to decades of history, conflict, and cooperation. Yet for such an important division, there are surprisingly few crossings, with not one passenger bridge in operation. On the Edge, Life Along the Russia-China Border by Carolyn Humphrey and Frank Billet is an in-depth study of this border. Looking at the divided island of Bolshoi-Ussuriski and the border towns of Blagoveshensk and Heihe, On the Edge gives a picture of how people live, work, and trade along this little studied border. Frank Billet is program director at the Tang Center for Silk Road Studies, University of California, Berkeley. He is the author and editor of three books about East Asia, including Xenophobia, Anxiety, Violence, and the Making of Mongolian Identity. Caroline Humphrey is fellow of King's College at the University of Cambridge and founder of the university's Mongolia and Inner Asia Studies Unit. She is the author of several books about the anthropology of Inner Asia and recently edited and contributed to Trust and Mistrust in the Economies of the China-Russia Borderlands. We're joined again today by Yvonne Lau. Yvonne, um, and like say about yourself, um, share a few words about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thank you so much, Nicholas, for having me again. Um, I'm Fortune Magazine's Asia Markets reporter based in Hong Kong. I cover everything from IPOs, cryptocurrency, and China. Uh, my first experience of the Russian Far East was back in 2017 in Vladivostok, a Russian port city about four hours away by plane from Hong Kong. Uh, in the following years, I, I began sojourning across Siberia, specifically along the border towns close to China. Uh, I then became interested in Russia and China's long history of complex ties and have been tracking developments along the Sino-Russia border since. I should note that Carolyn and Frank's research was an invaluable companion during these trips, so I'm very excited for a conversation today and to hear what they have to say. So in this interview, we'll talk about, well, the border and the people that live on either side of it. So, Carolyn and Frank, thank you so much for joining me and Yvonne today. Um, perhaps it's best to start with 
the border. Essentially, how long is it? What's the history behind it? Um, and kind of what's that border like from a geographical standpoint? Well, thank you, Nicholas, for having us on your show. Uh, the border is um, 2,600 miles long, which is 4,100 kilometers. And it runs from the eastern tip of Mongolia all the way along going eastwards until it meets the Sea of Japan at uh, Vladivostok and further south of that. Now, all of this border, practically all of it, is um, great rivers. And these are, uh, unlike any rivers you, you find in Europe, let's say, they're, they're great twisting things that curl around in coils. Um, they flood very often. They've got dozens, in fact, hundreds of little islands in the middle of them, and they keep changing their course. So they're a very uh, difficult border to manage and to, to sort of uh, plot out, as you can see. Um, and there are very few places where there's an actual land border between Russia and China. There's one at the far western end of this border, and there's another one in the far east. But most of it is, is these great rivers. Now, the history of the border is a very old one. It goes back to the 17th century and was fixed by treaties between Tsarist Russia and uh, the Qing Empire of China. And those treaties lasted until about 1860 when uh, the Russians took advantage of um, weakness in China at the time and forced the Chinese emperor into giving up a large chunk of land, a uh, really huge territory in the Far East. And um, this was, of course, one of the so-called unequal treaties that China signed in that period. And the, the Russians then built the city of Vladivostok on that land. Um, and Vladivostok, by the way, the word in Russian means rule the east. So it's, it's a very clear um, uh, sort of indication of the meaning of this area for Russia. Um, now, today, there's no plan in China to take back that land um, from Russia, um, unlike, say, the way that China took back Hong Kong from Britain. But we did find on the ground that the Chinese people have not really forgotten that whole episode. And there is a bit of uh, sort of potential resentment brewing inside China about the land that was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we could talk about uh, the first case study in the book, The Island of Bolshoi Usuriski. I found this chapter very interesting. Um, I recall uh, reading in this chapter that um, there's a statue of the Chinese character Dong on the Chinese side of the island, which from, I believe it's a bird, bird's eye perspective, it resembles a warship pointed at Habarovsk. I remember when I was in Habarovsk and I was walking along the embankment and there was a cannon pointing towards the Chinese side. It seems like the landmarks here are loaded with symbolic meaning. So perhaps you could uh, um, explain, you know, why is this island important in the history of Sino-Russian relations? Um, what made this island contested and how was the conflict resolved? Yes, this is a really fascinating island. What happened here was that um, both sides, both Russia and China, initially, uh, they're big national states. They wanted to... Uh, get as much sovereignty as they could in this region, and they both thought uh, that the uh, their land, uh, their sovereignty extended to the other side of the river. So they both claimed these islands in the river for many, many years, and 
There were many disputes about this, and indeed there was a war fought uh, between China and Russia in the 1960s. Um, but uh, in more recent years, sort of around 2000 and afterwards, they began to realize they really needed to settle this border issue all the way along and decide to whom the islands in the middle of the river actually belonged. And they decided to go by the internationally recognized way of de dealing this, which, which is uh, to, to run the border along the um, deepest channel of the river, uh, the Thalwig. And um, they did this, and uh, the result with Bolsha Usuriski was that it should belong to China because the deepest channel goes north of it on the Chinese side. But um, the Russians uh, were worried about um, having a buffer between China and Habarovsk. As it's good you notice that gun facing from Habarovsk towards China. Um, and so uh, it was decided to cut the island in half, and the Russians would keep one half of it as a kind of buffer for Habarovsk, and the Chinese would have the other side. And we found the island so interesting because it, what happened there, when you have the same place but um, each side belonging to the other country, um, is very indicative of, of the two countries as a whole, we think. And what happened on the Chinese side was that they decided um, to integrate the island into their ecology and development policy for uh, the north of China. And they, they turned the island into a sort of um, ecological zone, but a money-making one, so that they um, made it into a sort of ecological tourism base. And thousands of tourists went onto the Chinese side and they, they built up sort of uh, a bridge and uh, things like bird watching platforms and that kind of thing where people could, a tourist could go. On the Russian side, uh, there had been um, an army base that fell into disrepair. Uh, dis um, and on the Russian side, more or less nothing has happened uh, for years and years and years. Um, so it's full of ruins and very few people living there, although there have been a tremendous number of um, rather idealistic plans of what they might do with the island, and nothing has actually happened. And as uh, Yvonne said, both sides, however, see it as a very symbolic space, and the Chinese have placed uh, this huge monument, uh, uh, the, uh, the letter Dong, and a, a very elaborate pagoda with wonderful carvings and evidence of Chinese culture on, the, on their side. On the Russian side, um, they've built nothing practically except for a tiny little Russian Orthodox chapel. And there really isn't much co congregation or anything like that. There's no priest. Um, and they occasionally hold some um, religious services for military personnel at that chapel, but, but basically it stands there alone, and it's dedicated, in fact, to a saint of the lone warrior, um, the idea of this lone person standing up for Christianity and Russia on the border of China. Mm -hmm. This case study is fascinating, and I, it's not the only contested island in the history of Sino-Russian ties. Um, it brings to mind uh, Damansky Island, which was eventually ceded to China. And, um, you know, I suppose after this 
contested island, the conflict here was resolved. Uh, Sino-Russian ties began improving and um, cross-border trade finally opened up in the late 1980s. So I would like to ask you both, uh, how did business links in this border region develop? Uh, was there trade during China and Russia's early ties, say in the 17th century, or did it primarily develop after the fall of the Soviet Union? And how did both sides perceive these links and have these perceptions changed today? Well, I think uh, there has been trade all, all along between China and Russia. Um, it uh, used to be highly um, sort of part of diplom diplomacy between the two countries. So there would be trade caravans, let's say, in the 18th century going from Russia to China um, to take back goods. And um, in the 19th century, there the developed um, a great tea trade, which crossed Mongolia, in fact, um, and so bypassed a bit of this border. But that was a very, very strong trade until it was overtaken by um, sea maritime trade in tea um, and fell sort of, it kind of ended really by the end of the 19th century. And so now what we have is a huge um, border trade um, of manufactured goods, mainly from China, that's clothing, utensils, um, computers, um, mobile phones, um, practically anything you can name that's manufactured um, is made in China and sold in Russia. And what happens is that um, people from Russia... Um, so-called shuttle traders, they're, they're mostly sort of um, not professional traders, they're people who just go over there, buy up stuff, um, work for little companies, and then go back to Russia, carrying it themselves and selling it off in, in local shops or in, in local markets. And that's uh, usually a sort of rather um, low-level trade. It's not high-value um, and of course, as everybody knows, the high-value trade between China and Russia is in uh, gas and oil and uh, minerals, coal, uh, timber, uh, that kind of thing. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And for all of this trade, uh, for a border between two major countries, it seems like there are surprisingly few infrastructure links. Um, in the book, it mentions that you know China has this long-standing policy to develop um, via investment in transport infrastructure while Russia, while in Russia, there are no roads that are by the border and these villages have to make do with dirt roads, essentially. Um, I remember reading about one bridge, the Amur River Bridge, which was announced when Yeltsin was still in power. And it, I believe it recently opened uh, last year. So why is it that, you know, there's such significant cross-border trade happening in these regions, um, but yet the infrastructure ties still lack here? I think it's um, mainly because Russia is very much obsessed with um, security along this border. Um, in fact, along the entire Russia border, not just the one with China, but all, all Russian borders, they have a, a so-called security zone, which um, is several kilometers deep. It runs like a ribbon all the way along the border. And... Um, this means that um, nobody can go into this zone without permission, and that, uh, uh, even if they live there, even if they're a Russian citizen. Um, and for foreigners, it's difficult to go into those zones. You have to get special permission. Uh, that's one thing that's held up um, 
kind of general development along the border. Uh, so there's this kind of somewhat blank space running along the border. Um, and I think this is to do with the fact that um, uh, the, the whole region of the Russian Far East was very militarized. It was um, full of uh, army bases and uh, factories producing military equipment, nuclear equipment, um, mining of uranium, and a, a large number of very high security um, sort of production uh, installations were, were sort of along this border. Um, another thing, I guess, was that many of these places were closed themselves because um, they were they were highly sensitive from the information point of view. Um, in the past, they were associated with um, unfree labor, with um, uh, gulag camps, and so on. So a lot of the labor came from um, from that source, which was another reason to keep them out of the the public eye. So that sort of general buildup of security, a whole range of security issues, I think, on the Russian side. Um, it's not exactly the same now as it used to be, of course, but um, because there's a considerably less uh, in terms of the military installations than there used to be. But even so, they're still very security conscious, and I think they're worried that if they opened up to too many avenues into China, backwards and forwards, that the ordinary population could come and go um, more or less as they wanted, that would be a very dangerous um, security situation from from their point of view, they would feel they'd be losing control, and so the, there there have been elements in Russia, mainly the security services, which have tried to prevent this happening. And I think that's been the cases with things like the bridges over the river, which have been held up mainly on the Russian side. Yeah, and I I think this anxiety is also linked um, to the demographic imbalance between the two. But I think the, the question you you pose, Ivan, is the the lack of infrastructure that we see maybe at regional level um, is is not. I mean, that's, if if you look at national level, that's different because Manjoli is actually one of the main. Um, Land ports and a lot. There's a lot of traffic going through it. So it's it, between the two countries. There is actually a lot of uh, exchange, and the infrastructure is there. But it's just at regional level, all along the border, there isn't that much. But you have to also bear in mind there's only five million people live in, in on, on the Russian side, living in the whole the entire Russian Far East. So the the exchange that we have between. Uh, uh, the, the Russians living in the in in the Russian Far East and the Chinese on the other side is is not at the same level of of course uh, in in terms of uh, in terms of size. So I think there's a, there's an there's a difference there. But if you talk about the the national or the regional engagement and the connections, well, it's interesting you you talk about size and the difference in size because I think that's a that's a good segue into your second case study which are the cities of uh, Blagoveshensk and Heihe. Um, Blagoveshensk is obviously, you know, on the Russian side, it's, I think it's the population of kind of 200, 300,000. And then you have Heihe on the other side, which has grown from what was a tiny village to quite a large city. Um, I guess kind of, again, again, to help set the scene, um, what are these two cities and, and what are their histories? 
Right. So these two cities were very interesting to me personally when we started the project because they are really the only two cities of comparable size uh, today um, just by the border. I mean, there are cities, of course, on, on, on either side, but Vladivostok is not right there on the border. Khabarovsk is, but th- th- there isn't an exact, you know, a, a city of similar size right on the other side. Whereas Blagoveshensk and Hekhe are really, um, they're just separated by a river. And from certain uh, viewpoints, it even looks like a single place. Uh, it's, it, it, they're really kind of two cities just next to each other for 500 meters apart. So it was very interesting to just to then look at the the way they have grown, the way they have developed, and the way they they really kind of um, an example of each country to the other side. So Blagoveshensky is not just a city, is also the face of Russia, and same thing for Hekha, it's been the face of China for a lot of Russians. Um, so it was, as I said, a similar size. They're actually difficult to compare because the the way cities are defined are different in Russia and China. In China, they tend to include a lot of, uh, they tend to be uh, larger areas encompassing some, um, what we would see as non-urban space. Um, but they are still kind of a similar size uh, and similar uh, population. Um, as you said, Hecha was just a tiny little settlement until the late 80s. And then when the border opened um, and people started trading and developed very quickly. Uh, and the way, the, the reason it developed so quickly is because Russians were right on the other side. Uh, they needed a lot of, uh, I mean, various um, um consumer goods that China was producing and they were then lacking in, in Russia. So there was a perfect uh, a perfect moment for cities like Hekha, but also Manjoli and, and other cities on the border, on the Chinese side, to develop and develop very quickly. Um, so Blagoveshensk um, was established uh, as a modern city in 1856. There were various settlements before that in the area, forts, uh, etc. But the city was established in 1856. Um, and Hecha was there as well. I mean, it was, you know, there were like a bunch of settlements on either side. Um, at, so at first sight, these two, uh, these two cities are very different. Um, Hecha is, uh, there's a lot of lights, especially in the evening uh, and at night. All the buildings are illuminated was on the Russian side, that's not the case. Um, Hecha is vertical. There's really kind of this emphasis on, on the high rise, uh, whereas uh, the, the way um, urban modernity is mobilized in, in Russia is very different. It tends to be more focused on uh, large avenues with greenery um, on, on a grid, on a very fixed grid. Um, um, and Hecha is more dense, therefore, and, and, uh, than, than Blagoveshensk. Um, so they look very, very different. Uh, if you're in Hecha and you don't, if you didn't know where you were, you, you'd imagine you, you could be anywhere in, in China, except for a few things I'll, I'll mention afterwards. Um, and same thing for Russia. If you, if you didn't know where you were, you could be anywhere in, in Russia. It could be in Eastern Europe. It's uh, very different because they val- developed uh, largely independently. I mean, Blagoveshensk was established when there was really 
nothing on the other side. So it was kind of a, uh, it was um, a way for Russia to mark its territory, uh, like in the similar way as Blagoveshensky, as uh, Vladivostok, which is ruler of the East. Blagoveshensky is the uh, a, a kind of a, it's good news. It's basically kind of religious, uh, a religious um, uh, symbolism. Uh, so it was really kind of a way for Russia to mark its its uh, space there, and then Hegel developed very quickly on more Chinese model. Uh, but there are there are elements in Hegel that are interesting and really kind of you you can see where you are. I mean, it kind of betrays this location on the Russia on the Russian uh, border because there's various uh, urban furniture that is kind of a Russian. Uh, with the Russian imaginary, you have like a matryoshka dolls on the embankment. You have bears, which symbolize Russia. So all these things are, are a way, on the one hand, to at least that's, that's what Russians on the other side would say, it's a way to attract Russians to make it to make them feel at home. On the other hand, it's also a way to market itself as a, as a unique uh, place in China that could attract uh, domestic tourists, a way where you can experience Russia without having to cross the border. Um, on the on on the Blagovation side, very similar to Khabarovsk, the the monuments that you have on the on the embankment are all military, all about the military history. You have a tank. You have also you know facing uh, facing China. You have uh, a, a statue of a of a, a border guard with a dog. All the all the symbolism you have is very different. There is there, there's no sense of engagement or trying to be uh, trying to replicate China or making feel China comfortable. Is the other way is really kind of marking again this uh, this spot, uh, saying this is Russia and it's always been Russia. Um, so that is very different. Um, but what I what we found very interesting is the more time you spend there, and the more you realize there is actually. Um, some uh, bleed through of certain cultural elements because the two cities are so close to each other and because they are so far from their respective center there is also the, uh, a need for them to engage um, visually and also in terms of what modernity might might mean so certain things that were actually criticized by Russians early on like the, all these lights on buildings which they thought were you know, tacky and not really uh, reflective of what urban modernity is because it was so different from what they had. It's something that's been adopted in Russia as well now. Um, the, some of the urban furniture, like trash cans in Russia, in, in Blagoveshens, have been imported from Hecha, so they, they are the same as the Chinese side. It's with even the the, 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 the letters on them, you know, the, the, the instructions of where to, to dump the trash and where to dump the recycling. That's all in Chinese because, because of the, the, the material and economic engagement between the two, because they're, they're really, they're so close to each other. So they have to trade with each other. So there is this on this, this kind of undercurrent of, uh, of similarities, which is really interesting. And it's not something that you, that is obvious uh, at first sight. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Mm-hmm. I agree with your sentiment, Frank, that uh, Hayho and Blagoveshansk are really fascinating places, and particularly the fact that you can cross to the other side in about you know, 10 to 15 minutes, um, pre-pandemic anyway. Uh, these t- two border towns aren't the only ones where um, you know, cross-border trade and social interactions are happening uh, daily. Uh, you mentioned uh, Manjoli uh, and its sister city, Krasnokamensk, um, Puyuen, and Habarovsk. So I'd like to ask you, uh, what do people in these towns think about their counterparts um, across the river? The book talks about some long-held stereotypes by Chinese and Russians um, about their neighbors. Right. Um, Well, I think when the the border reopened in the late 80s, there were very little direct knowledge of the other side. Uh, Everything had been kind of filtered through... um, you know, propaganda on both sides. There was a lot of uh, hostility. It was, of course, different for the older generation, for people who had lived, you know, would spend maybe uh, time, you know, a few decades prior to that when there was some uh, some engagement between the two countries. Um, but generally, there was really not a lot of knowledge. So even people in, in Blagoveshensk, I'll mention Blagoveshensk quite a lot because it's, that's, that's, that's been my primary focus on that border. But it's, it's, it would be true of other Russian cities. Uh, they really didn't know anything about the other side. So they were very curious to see. There was a lot of uh, interest at first. Um, but then there was also, because when Hegel started developing, it was, it was first it was a, a village and then an overgrown village. And it was really not, not exactly a, a modern city in any kind of way. Um, it was there were a lot of... Um, I mean, the, the 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 goods that were produced there were very often very shoddy, and you know, it was people just trying to make a, a living on the Chinese side and on the Russian side, trying to go there and 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 buy those things. So there there was this sense that China was actually very poor, very undeveloped, um, and it's been a, um, a reason why people have, you know, on the Russian side have criticized Hecha as not really modern, but just really kind of pretending. It was just a lot of lights, but really nothing behind it. There was, and there's still this sense um, for a lot of people in Russia that, that this is not real modernity. It's just kind of a fake. It's changing, especially as people are, are going further inland. They, they are confronted with, you know, the, the real modern cities of, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, and Etc. And then so they, they they see that it's actually something real. It's not just a, an illusion. But at the beginning, there was a lot of that sense of illusion. Um, on the Chinese side, uh, I think it, there was a lot of pragmatic um, attitudes. So there's there's a there's a great opportunity to make to make money to do business. Um, people were learning at least, you know, rudimentary Russian in order to trade. Um, but um, even though there's there's been this kind of a strong commercial engagement, there hasn't the social on the social level it hasn't really followed, and non culturally either. Um, I 
on the on, in black ovations you never hear for instance chinese music or you know that if you see the the films shown in cinema they're either russian or western there's there's not a lot of uh, um engagement at that level uh uh, in Hecha, it seems also, well, you know, we live next to Russia. We might as well make money out of it. But um, I also don't feel there's so much uh, um, desire to really engage culturally. Um, the Russians have been also, I mean, Russians in Hecha uh, who go there for business, I mean, to buy things, they tend to be quite dismissive of the Chinese living there and speaking to them means very often, uh, you know, they use kind of uh, the, the informal pronouns for you, you know, like tea, like in, like in French too, with something they would never do, for instance, if they were, you know, in, in Western Europe, they w- would be much more polite. So there's this sense of um, a little bit of kind of a, um, a remnants, I would say, of the 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 the, the, the socialist times, where Russia was seen as leading the way, and China was like the the younger brother. So the fact that these roles have been reversed is not something people are really willing to to really take uh, take seriously on the Russia side. Um, so. So I, yeah, I, I could I could say more, but <laughs> maybe that that answers the. The, the question that you had. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Carolyn, I'd like to pivot a little bit to chapter four now, um, an important chapter in the book as it discusses the oft forgotten indigenous groups of the region, such as the Buryats and the Evenki. Uh, could you briefly touch upon the history of the indigenous groups in this region um, along the Sino-Russian border towns and what their future looks like under modern Chinese and Russian rule? Yes. Um, the uh, indigenous peoples are... Um, they kind of divide into two kinds. Some of them are quite large in number, um, sort of hundreds of thousands of people, um, and they mainly have sort of Mongolian language ancestry um, of various kinds. And then there are a a number of small groups, um, really with, um, you know, very few thousands of people, um, and very scattered and um, and sort of um, engaged in a, traditionally in things like hunting and fishing and reindeer herding, which um, don't have uh, much of a future in, in the present day. Um, and so the, the indigenous peoples, um, uh, it's difficult to think of them all as all as one kind of uh, set of problems, and and they've reacted very differently to the border. I think um, the um, it, broadly speaking, I think we can say that the small groups um, are trying to survive on either side of the border in the best way they can, and um, they're not terribly interested in making contact with one another over the border. So, even though they may actually ethnically be the same group, they hardly recognize that, or um, if they do, they don't have um, very much interest in contacting the other side. So you don't get, um, let's say, um, uh, somebody or some people from one of the small groups in Russia wanting to go to China uh, or the other way around, to visit, let's say, to visit uh, long-distant relatives. That's completely different with the larger groups, these um, 
the ones with the Mongolian background, uh, they're, on the contrary, very, very interested. And this has been growing in recent years. Um, and they've um, elaborated ways of thinking about the, the links with one another, which are very historical. So they will um, look back in their history and say, yes, we had these common ancestors. And uh, this will go back many centuries. And they try to um, concoct in their mind and their imagination a vision of themselves as a people which didn't take account of this border at all. And so th these would be conglomerations of people that spread across Asia. Um, and classically, they were um, nomadic people in the past. Um, and so it's those kind of, um, um, what could you call it, almost imaginary groups that they're interested in getting together and they do this in um, various ways. They, they have um, festivals and uh, religious um, points where they go for migrations and uh, rituals that they hold together. And it's really quite active, um, th these people trying to get together um, uh, at great length, you know, in terms of distance of miles and kilometers, they have to uh, to travel to meet each other. It can be thousands uh, of kilometers, and it's expensive and difficult um, getting across the border and um, uh, even the means of travel, because they go to obscure uh, places that are religiously sacred places, but they're not at all easy to get to, and there may not be proper roads going there, that kind of thing. But uh, they do pursue this, and um, it, I think it's an interesting phenomenon because it runs against the idea of this kind of black and white. You've got Russia on one side, China on the other. Um, here are people trying to think about things in a different way and uh, do their own thing, think, think about their own kind of um, communities that, that they're trying to bring together. Um, and we, we document this in the book, and we show how difficult it is and how it doesn't always work out well, that, you know, you can get um, misunderstandings, um, which we document, but also a lot of enjoyment about the from these um, things that people do together. I should say that um, the attitude of the um, governments in the countries is very difficult, different for this kind of phenomenon. In Mongolia, I think, which is sort of at the western end comes between China and Russia, it's um, it's quite encouraged, really. I think there's there's nothing anybody has against it. China actually forbids these kind of festivities and meetings in its own territory unless they're organised by the government, the Chinese officials themselves, which is a a slightly different thing. Um, well, very different because it's uh, not coming from the people themselves, but it's sort of organized from on top. And in Russia, um, they also um, try, from a government point of view, to, to kind of um, dominate these meetings in ways by sending along officials and politicians and uh, other sort of high up people to try and um, make the whole thing more official and ceremonial. But they, they don't always succeed. Um, and these kind of politics with regard to indigenous, um, sort of uh, spontaneous uh, indigenous um, meetings, um, I think indicates uh, the views in both China and Russia, which um, for decades really has been to discourage 
um, Indigenous people and not really help them in any way with their um, education or culture or language. I mean, all of those are under threat in both countries and um, in both China and Russia. Um, it's the spontaneity of um, indigenous activities that uh, the government really doesn't like. And so there have been um, many cases of, uh, of activists being punished or shut down or forced to uh, go into exile, um, particularly, well, in Russia and in China, both places. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carolyn Frank, uh, much of your research along the Russia-China border was conducted in the decade prior, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, as we welcome 2022, the third year of the pandemic, the crossings between uh, these border towns remain closed for ordinary people. Um, I'd like to ask, what does this border closure mean for economic and social interactions in the region? And what does it mean for your research, given the difficulties of traveling to this region now? Hmm. Yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I've, <laughs> I don't know what you think, Caroline, about this. Uh, I, I feel that they're, they're just, you know, in this very similar situation to the rest of the world. I don't know whether there's anything unique um, to that border in terms of pandemic. I mean, maybe given that that China has been very. Uh, uh, very careful to have to keep the, the numbers to zero, which is not the same case as Russia. So I don't know. It might I, early on uh, when the pandemic um, started, I think there was a lot of uh, recognition on on the part of Russia of what China was doing, that how responsive they were being. Um, but as the things evolve, it's, it's, it's very difficult to know. I mean, it's. It's so difficult to try and predict, you know, how, how things are going to impact, whether we're whether we're seeing the the tail end of it and things are gonna be normalized or whether you know we'll be thinking of this, you know, in the future as the oh the third year of the big pandemic, you know. <laughs> Who knows when it's that's gonna stop. I don't know. I don't know, Caroline, whether you've you've thought about that as well. Well, um I have heard from um the Chinese um uh colleagues that um, there is a sort of persistent sort of um, tendency in China to blame Russia for outbreaks of COVID along the border that um, whenever people do somehow manage to cross, although I think the border is now completely closed, um, they then say, oh, there's one case in uh, wherever it is, uh, Hailar or somewhere like some city near the border. This is uh, because it's coming from Russia. Uh, and they also blame um, the import of things like frozen frozen fish and things like this from Russia. Uh, this is bringing in um, the um, virus. And so it's, it's getting a fairly sort of xenophobic atmosphere in China, I think. But who knows how long that will last. It, 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 it may die away quite quickly. I think um, the Russians, though, are, are worried by this. And I have seen... Um, from um, experts in Moscow um, calls somehow to, to regularize this situation with China because they feel that um, the, the, this complete closure of the border is, is um, very difficult to sustain. And uh, as Frank said, um, the fact that in Russia um, a lot more is allowed, um, whereas in China, um, as we know, you know, a couple of cases in one town and the whole city may be 
closed down. So uh, the the difference in uh, attitude to the virus, I think, is beginning to tell and uh, create some sort of strain on relations. Mm. And in a way, I think this uh, this, in terms of the pandemic, the the. <laughs> The attitudes of Russia and China are reversed, you know, because what we describe in the book is uh, China being much more willing to engage with the other side, whereas uh, Russia is more worried and trying to close the borders. And in terms of the pandemic, it's been the opposite. It's, it's China has been very, very careful closing its border, whereas in Russia there's been maybe less, you know, there's been some reluctance to block everything and, you know, this... There's, there's been a lot of cases and, and and people refusing to get vaccinated and you know so yeah it's interesting you ask in terms of our research well we i mean plus i mean like now china is, is close to us um i am not particularly interested in going to russia right now given the the level of the pandemic um but even before, when we're doing research at the border, because we needed visa for both countries, you know, it's like we couldn't really go back and forth all the time. I mean, what I would I would normally fly to China and uh, have a, a double entry visa for China, and then one single entry for Russia, and I do research in China, then in some in Russia, and then go back to China and then fly out. It was it was not possible to go back and forth. In that sense, COVID is probably not going to have a strong impact if we. We do research at the border. It would maybe just go go on one side at a time. I want to look a bit further into the future um, for this for this last question um, in our interview, uh, which is, I mean, obviously China and Russia have followed very different economic trajectories over the past few decades. China's seen tremendous economic growth. Russia has to is. It's been more complicated, but generally has had a much tougher time economically. And, you know, you read books about the Russian Far East. Russia is constantly concerned about China just sweeping and just taking taking it over. If not officially, then let's say unofficially with a wave of Chinese migrants. They've been worried about this for centuries. Um, you see strains of this in conversation today. But Russia, you even hinted at it in the answer you gave just now. Um, whereas it used to be Russia that was more concerned about keeping the border closed and China being much more wanting to open the borders and do stuff in Russia. But kind of how do you see this divergence continuing to develop um, into the future? We can ex- we can probably expect China will continue to grow. We can probably expect that Russia will continue to have these struggles economically. How do you think this divergence over time will be reflected along the border? Um, yeah, so we, in, in our book, we try to, well, we're kind of careful about long-term mm. predictions because especially the, the way the world is now, it's like, it's, you know, we, you don't know what's going to happen in a year. Especially after the past three years, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would be hard put to give any prediction about what's happening in the country we are mm. living. So, you know, when you start, you know, looking at Russia and China, but uh, I, I think you're right that the, 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 the economic, you know, uh, power of China is going to continue. It's going to improve. It's going to, you know, China is just going to get stronger. Um, so I, I doubt. I mean, I is again, <laughs> it's impossible to know. But I, I, f- I feel that the the Russian fear of 
of China just Chinese just moving in and and physically you know uh, people the, the the Russian Pharisees unlike is an unlikely scenario, but we could imagine Russia just becoming some kind of resource appendage and just being kind of a in in the, in the suburbs of, of uh, you know uh, economic China in that sense, but we also have to keep in mind that Russia is not really prepared to do that. There's also a um, a disconnect between the actual place of the country in the world and the way it imagines itself to be. So I, I don't think China Russia is. is willing to become second fiddle you know so it's, it's not something that it, it it would have to reimagine itself and it's, it sees still sees itself as a world power so it's, it's hard to know how things are going to go i think it, it it looks like the russia would have less and less of a role but being pushed I'd, you know if 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 it's pushed too too strongly i don't know how it might react yeah I think if if I could add to that, I think um, I would agree with everything uh, Frank has said. But um, in the very long term, I think, uh, you know, if we think about things like climate change, um, things are moving gradually. It, it's apparent that greater and greater areas of Russia are, um, in a sense, benefiting from uh, higher temperatures, are, uh, the, uh, much more of the Russian Far East is now open for um, exploitation in agriculture and other ways. And here we see that um, whatever Moscow thinks, on the ground, uh, local people are um, opening themselves up in Russia to Chinese farming um, in these areas. So, so, for example, soya bean farming uh, there are huge acreages in Russian, Russia now that have um, uh, that are under Chinese management or ownership, and um, they're exporting to China. Um, and I think that um, in in view of um, you know the long term ways that populations uh, react to these changes, um, I have read. Uh, I think we noted in the book somewhere that. Um, there are predictions that um, there might be a move of population into those areas from China, um, just because um, when you have a country which is parts of which, like China, will be going drier and uh, less available for agriculture, and then you have nearby another area that's opening up and there are very, very few people living there, it's kind of inevitable. It's very difficult to stop that gradual uh, move of population into those areas to take advantage of it. And there are sort of signs that that may be happening uh, with, for example, this big company, uh, agribusiness, soya farming and that kind of thing. And I think uh, Frank is right that um, uh, Russians are aware in a way of this and uh, they don't want to encourage it necessarily. But then um, if uh, local uh, governments, municipalities, uh, small towns uh, do uh, want to benefit from um, agricultural development and other kinds of development on the spot. They uh, may sort of let this happen willy-nilly. Um, and so I, I agree it's very difficult to predict, but I, I wouldn't altogether uh, rule out um, a gradual sort of 
uh, move of, of Chinese population into the far, far east of Russia. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Caroline. And, and I think you're making a, a really a, a point that's actually core to what we've been doing with the book. I mean, when we started this project, which then turned into a book, we wanted to look at the border because we, we wanted to see what might be the incipient changes that were not yet registering at, at national level. So in the way the Russian Russians and Chinese were engaged, um, what that could tell us about how the countries were moving. Uh, but I think we can also look, I mean, we could also reverse that and say that there's, there's been this great announcement at national level, you know, that, oh, there's this uh, Russian uh, pivot to the East. But things don't move at the same speed at regional level. So, so there's really kind of these two different discourses. At one is you know the the, the macro, and one is the local uh, anxieties that Russia might have about Chinese taking over might not necessarily be reflected in the same way or at all at local level, where people might you know. Um, and encourage and welcome uh, Chinese uh, economic engagement to revitalize the region. So it's, I think that, that what the book is really kind of one of the, the core hinges, I, th- I would say, of the, the book is this kind of two different discourses and how they, they come together, but they also remain separate on some level. Yeah. <laughs> so... Thank you for listening to your interview with Caroline Humphrey and Frank Billet, authors of On the Edge, Life Along the Russia-China Border. So, Caroline, Frank, I actually do have one more question, which is, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, right. <laughs> so, in terms of work, you mean the, the book or the uh, work generally? However you wish to interpret that question. <laughs> But the book is available on the website of Harvard University Press as well as on Amazon and, and, and bookstores. Um, uh, I think a good way for people to track uh, the work of academics in terms of not just books but also articles is to look at Academia IDU maybe where we we just uh, announced you know like a, a recent uh, uh, recent publications. Um, uh, in terms of my own work, I'm, uh, I am finalizing a, a, a monograph looking at borders more generally, looking at uh, how borders are uh, often described in corporal, corporeal language, you know, loss of territories kind of equated to mutilation or dismemberment. So I'm trying to grapple with this uh, and try and see to what extent it can illuminate some of the uh, nationalist uh, moves that we're seeing at, at various, in various countries around the world. And uh, I've been writing an article on uh, free speech in Russia or um, what kind of language changes there have been for, in which um, if free speech is not possible, people do nevertheless manage to uh, say what they think in various ways inside Russia. So you can follow me, 
Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can follow Yvonne Lau on Twitter at Ivani Lau. That's Y V O N N E Y L A U. You can go to AsianViewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find counsel author reviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us in interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Catherine Chan, author of The Macanese Diaspora in British Hong Kong, A Century of Trans-Imperial Drifting. But before then, Carolyn, Frank, thank you so much for joining me and Avant today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. And Yvonne. Thank you. Thank you to both of you.